Hello and welcome to a CHI podcast for the upcoming Structure-Based Drug Design Conference being held this May 21st through 22nd in Boston, Massachusetts. My name is Samantha Lewis and I'm the conference producer working on the meeting. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Jason Birch, who works in the Medicinal Chemistry Department at Genentech. Dr. Birch received his PhD from Harvard University in 2005, following which he started his industrial career at Merck Frost, where he worked on EP4 agonists, SYK inhibitors, and NNRTIs for the treatment of HIV. His department was involved in the development of four preclinical candidates, and one of these, MK1439, is currently in Phase 2b for the treatment of HIV. In 2010, Dr. Birch moved to Genentech, where he is predominantly focused on the development of ITK inhibitors. Welcome, Dr. Birch, and thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you for having me. So my first question for you is, what effect do you see advances in genomics and more patients seeking personalized treatments having on drug design techniques? So with the explosion of human genomics, with more patients going towards personalized medicine, and both of those things have had pretty much the same effect on us at the basic research level. Genomics, of course, has led to the discovery of all sorts of new targets and I suppose it wasn't that long ago that we thought that all the good targets were gone, and now it's almost the opposite problem where we have too many targets. And in personalized medicine, you have a path now for people that are on the outliers of disease. So instead of before, we always had to focus kind of on the big part of the bell curve in terms of how people were responding to treatments. With personalized medicine, we can start to go out to the outliers for going for very specific pathways that might affect people on the outside of the bell curve for a given disease. And why that's really great for us, the basic research level, it can be very inspirational since those people are often the people who require the treatments the most or they have the worst prognosis. But with so many new targets, we now have to find more effective ways to triage them. We have to get to an in vivo proof of concept much faster. And the traditional way that one might get to an in vivo proof of concept would be to you run an HTS campaign and then you try to do some structure-based design and you improve your potency and selectivity and then you maybe have some issues with ADME properties and then you have to solve those. And those iterative cycles are, are very slow. So we need a faster way to get to something which can be tested in vivo that you know will also be potent and selective so that you can actually triage the target in terms of having the effect you desire. So I think that one thing that we have at Genentech, which we do a little bit different than some other people, is that we do structure-based and property-based design simultaneously as opposed to first optimizing for potency and selectivity using structure-based design and then following it up with the property design to try to fix your ADME properties. We do them at the same time. We do uh, computational-based properties design and computational and crystallography structure-based design simultaneously to try to get more fast to a molecule which can be tested in vivo to allow us to triage the targets more effectively. So you guys are on top of that there at Genentech then? <laughs> I guess so. Now, your presentation at the SBDD conference is going to demonstrate a case study using structure and property-based methods, just like you mentioned, to create a quality ITK inhibitor. Why did you choose to pursue ITK inhibitors? So Genentech, we like kinases in general. ITK stands for interleukin two inducible T-cell kinase. We have a lot of experience in kinases for cancer treatments, and we've recently begun, begun to expand into the immunology areas. And ITK is part of the signal transduction pathway downstream from the T-cell receptor. So T-cell receptor or TCR signaling ultimately results in the release of pro-inflammatory cytokines like IL-2, IL-4, IL-13, interferon gamma. And all of these, when these cytokines are released, that leads to the inflammatory signal. So if you can inhibit that pathway, that would be an effective treatment in theory for any particular inflammatory disease, asthma, rheumatoid arthritis, all sorts of inflammatory diseases, inflammatory bowel disease. And there are treatments that, that, that achieve this that are available in clinics such as tofacetinib or Humira. But all of these treatments that go after inflammatory cytokines, in general, they have to carry warnings about infection because your body also uses the same pathway to fight off infections from bacteria, etc. 
So the reason why ITK is a pretty exciting target, there's obviously lots of treatments for asthmatics, but again, uh, in a in personalized uh, medicine world, we're going to go after the severe asthmatics that don't necessarily respond to inhaled corticosteroids, etc. And so ITK why people are excited about this target specifically for asthma is that it affects the function of only a specific subset of T cells, which are called T helper subtype 2 or TH2 cells, but they leave their paired TH1 cells functioning normally. And this is in the case that has been demonstrated by many people in knockout mice where ITK is removed completely. So by leaving the TH1 cells functioning normally, this is the way that the mice can still maintain a normal response to pathogens and other infections. And the hope being that you're just specifically removing the TH2 pathway, and TH2 is primarily implicated in response to asthmatic antigens. So therefore, the theory is that if a selective ITK inhibitor has the potential to be an effective treatment for asthma while allowing the body to maintain its ability to fight off pathogenic infections. What would you say are some of the most important considerations in developing these selective inhibitors? So with all kinases, one has to really worry about selectivity, of course, because there's over 500 of them in your body, and they all recognize ATP, so that the active site is all quite similar. It's a flat lipophilic aptic site with a hydrogen bonding array. So the kind of things that inhibited kinases generally look pretty similar. But ITK does have some unique residues in the active site, and there's two in particular that we focused on. There's two phenylalanines. The so-called gatekeeper residue of ITK is a phenylalanine. That's phenylalanine 435. And then two residues away, there's another phenylalanine 437. So we call these the sentinels of the active site. They are at either ends of the active site. They kind of encompass it. And with those two residues, there's only 14 of the 500 kinases that actually contain those two phenylalanines. So if you can interact specifically with those two residues, you've already eliminated a great deal of the kinome. And then it's just further tuning to try to narrow down specific ITK inhibition. Problem is that phenylalanines are lipophilic and aromatic residues, so classical thinking would direct you towards a ligand which interacts a lipophilic aromatic group to maximize pi stacking with these residues. And as your lipophilicity goes up, your metabolic stability goes down, and further, you're increasing your aromatic ring count, and that generally results in poor ADME properties such as solubility. So typical ITK inhibitors in the literature are highly lipophilic. They have many aromatic rings, and generally they are poor in vivo ADME properties so not very good for a tool molecule to help prosecute this target in an in vivo sense. But we actually also thought it would be a good target for us because where we can use our simultaneous structure-based and property-based approaches to optimize your interactions with the key residues in a way that doesn't necessarily drive your lipophilicity into an unacceptable range and also doesn't drive your aromatic ring count into unacceptable levels. And the final question I want to ask you is what types of techniques were used to improve the pharmaceutical properties of the lead matter? focused predominantly on one particular technique. We decided to focus a lot on solubility as a measure for the overall properties, good ADME properties that we were trying to create. And so we wanted to have a way that we could predict whether our compounds would be soluble and then using solubility as kind of a general indicator for bulk ADME properties. And the reason why we focused in that region, as I mentioned, that you have these two phenylalanine sentinels, and we knew that the interaction with those basically was driving you into an insoluble space. You have to get lipophilic, you have to get aromatic ring counts up. So we wanted to focus in ways that we could interact with those without necessarily causing those problems. So there was a recent publication not that long ago by a couple of chemists from GlaxoSmithKline, and they invented a parameter called solubility index. And it's a really simple parameter. You just basically add together the number of aromatic rings your molecule has, which you can, anytime you design a molecule, you can obviously count up the aromatic rings. And you just add in on top of that the calculated log D, which is a parameter 
can be generated by any number of programs. And so they just add those two together, and that gives you a solubility index. And they saw a very nice correlation with as your solubility index goes up, your solubility goes down. So we were able to retroactively apply this parameter to our historical compounds that had already been created and saw that we had a very nice correlation as well within our chemical matter such that as the solubility index was going up, our solubility was going down. And so we then just were able to come up with a cutoff in the design phase. We don't want to have solubility index higher than a given number, and that will hopefully increase the percentage of molecules which will come out the other end, uh, not only potent and selective, but also have good ADME properties simultaneously. So the, uh, the problem with this approach, what made it difficult is, and this will be how our presentation will be summarized, is that put you in a very limited design space because of these two aromatic residues, you have to keep your aromatic ring count low and still maintain good interaction. So that was where we had to pull in the third element of inspiration to find ways to still maintain interaction with those two. And then, So how can we saturate part of our molecule, remove one of the aromatic rings, but still maintain a nice interaction with those sentinel residues? And I guess will be the story that I'll have to tell for uh, the people that come to the conference. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Birch, for your time. Yeah, you're welcome. It was my pleasure. And again, this has been a CHI podcast with Dr. Jason Birch of Genentech. And as he mentioned, you can hear more from him as well as other leading drug design researchers this May 21st through 22nd in Boston. For more information and to register, visit healthtech.com backslash structure dash based dash drug dash design.